0: Well welcome to another episode of theology doesn't suck where our hope is that theology doesn't suck uh, with you today as always is myself Josh Patterson and my wonderful co-host Marty Frederick what's going on Marty
1: hello how are you
0: I'm doing good man the I had a really great day yesterday because one like you know the church service was great we started a new a new teaching series and um I think Mark did a really good job. He's the head passer. And then uh, two of my teams won yesterday. The Washington Capitals beat the Flames. Jacob Verona had a hat trick. And the Baltimore Ravens beat New England, which not only am I a fan of the Ravens, but I cannot stand the New England Patriots. So anybody who beats the Patriots is a, a friend of mine.
1: Well, I can get behind the Patriots losing a the game. Uh, there's, no, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I, I can't get behind, uh, you know, the bears continuing to lose Mm. (laughs) over and over again. And, uh, that's just no fun, but you know, the Blackhawks, they're not doing all that great either. So, I I mean, I don't, I don't really have a leg to stand on in any sports (laughs) conversations right now. The bulls aren't very good. The, the, the Cubs and the white Sox didn't do anything. So I'm just kind of out. (laughs)
0: Yeah. That's a bummer. Dude. Well, you could just become a Caps fan. I've been praying for your salvation for a long time now, so maybe today's the day that you accept the Washington Capitals into your heart.
1: And... No, not gonna happen.
0: All right, well, I'll keep praying for you then, brother. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, you can go ahead and pray all you'd like, but uh, I'm I'm pretty satisfied. I love my teams. I love my city. I just it's a bummer when they don't win. But fair you know,
0: enough. fair enough. I could
1: think of I could think of a couple places that probably would love to have a sports team that don't have a sports team. Um, so at least I've got that you know I've got a team that I can cheer for and root for. So
0: that's true. That's fair yeah. enough. Good point. Good point. Sweet. Well, I guess probably a good idea would be we have a, another person with us here today, and uh, probably a good idea to introduce them. Um, a special guest, and with us today is uh, author Brian McLaren. So Brian, how are you doing?
2: Hey, Josh and Marty, I'm doing great. Uh, I, so I guess, Marty, what you're saying is that it's better to have a losing sports team than no sports team at all. That's kind of the...
1: That's my
0: mentality. It's all <laughs> I can do right now.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Man, goodness. Awesome. Well, uh, Brian, thank you so much for uh, taking some time to chat with us today. We're super excited. Yeah. Um, I've been a fan of your work for quite some time. It's been very uh, helpful and... um has shaped me uh, quite a bit and so thank you for that and again thank you for your time. Well, It's Um, it's
2: a pleasure to be with you and I'm glad the books have been helpful.
0: Super helpful, Mm -hmm. like unbelievably helpful. (laughs) More than you know. Um, But so we do do this thing. We have a question that we ask all of our guests when they come on the show and it's a super important question. Um, Like really depending on your answer we may or may not be able to continue this interview I'm um, sorry, are you, are you ready for the question?
2: I'm ready, I'm ready.
0: All right, what is your favorite hockey team?
2: Oh my goodness, <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, so I was just, literally this past weekend, I was just in Calgary. So isn't their team the Oilers, is that right?
0: Uh, close, um, so the Oilers are in Edmonton, but the Flames oh, are right. in Calgary. The Flames, yeah, the Flames, the Flames. The Flames.
2: So I, I guess in honoring Alberta, I'll say the Flames are, and the Oilers. How's that?
0: <laughs> I like it. That works. I love it. We'll take two, uh, two Canadian teams. We, uh, we just did a conversation with uh, Sarah Bessie, and she lives in Vancouver. Yes. And uh, she also likes the Flames, but her heart is to the Boston Bruins because that was her father's team. And so um, mm-hmm. we still talk to her even though she likes Boston, which is fine.
2: Yeah, <laughs> well, you know, I I lived in the D.C. area for many years, so I I probably ought to say the Capitals too. So there
0: we go. Awesome. All right. <laughs> Great success. Sweet. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for playing along with our our stupid little game there. Um, but <laughs> before we jump in, can you just kind of give us a little bit of like background about yourself, like who you are, what do you do, just in case um, our listeners haven't uh, come in contact with you yet.
2: Sure. Well, the short version is I I was born in New York. I lived in Illinois for a little while, but spent most of my life in Maryland. And I uh, was a college English teacher. I taught at the University of Maryland and Montgomery College, a few other colleges in the area there. And then I was part of a little group that started a church and ended up becoming the pastor of that church. And I served there for 24 years. And while I was a pastor, I started writing books about some of my own struggles of faith and some of the things I was learning as a pastor. And so, for the last wow, thirteen years—it's hard to believe—I've uh, I've lived as an author and a speaker, and I have a lot of causes I'm committed to. So I, you know, do some activist work and so on.
0: Awesome. What the, what was the very first book that you wrote?
2: Uh, it was called uh, "The Church on the Other Side." Although, okay. Okay. Um, yeah, that was, it was 1998. It's, they, my title was The Church on the Other Side. Their first edition, they called it Reinventing Your Church. I hated that title so much, <laughs> and uh, then they changed it. So okay, was-
0: cool. Awesome. Yeah, I always wondered, um, sweet, which one was first. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. Uh, and also, real quick, this an interesting thing I learned recently, I was talking to um, Mark Tyndall, who is the head pastor of the church that I'm at called Seneca Creek Community Church.
2: I he, remember Mark. Yeah. yeah, he
0: informed me that you there's some you have some kind of connection to Seneca Creek.
2: Well, that's right. I mean, I I uh, knew the original uh, founding pastor, uh, and we in fact we still stay in touch occasionally. And I remember when you guys were you know just getting started. So uh, yeah, that, we go way back.
0: Oh, awesome! That that was really cool. I thought that was a neat a neat connection there when Mark uh, shared that with me. That's right. Sweet, awesome. Well. Uh, so you recently, um, being an author, put out a new book like good authors do, and uh, is a really cool book, uh, one I really enjoyed called "The Galapagos Islands: A Spiritual Journey." Um, now, can you tell us a little bit about like how this book came to be?
2: Sure. Well. Um- I uh, had just written a, a kind of a big book uh, called "The Great Spiritual Migration," and I didn't. And I was taking a little break. Um, my brain was tired, and I didn't have any commitments. And I was contacted by uh, a friend of mine who worked for another publisher uh, called Fortress Press, and he said um, that they were thinking about starting this new line of books where they would ask somebody who writes about theology, who somebody who doesn't think theology sucks.
0: Uh, <laughs> nice.
2: And, uh, to uh, do some theologizing in relation to a place, and so the idea is that all theology is contextual. It's which is a pretty important idea we might want to talk about. Yeah. Um, but that they but they said um, what we'd like to do is uh, have uh, invite some theologians to go to a place and then theologize and just write about that place from their spiritual uh, vantage point. So they said we we're thinking about asking you to go to the Galapagos Islands if you'd be open to it. And I said, uh, let me think about it for one second. (laughs) uh, So, you know, it was an amazing experience. Yeah, and uh, for people who don't know, the Galapagos Islands are a collection of islands uh, just uh, 600 miles west of, uh, of the coast of Ecuador. So the islands are right on the equator, and there are... Four large islands, and then a couple of medium-sized islands, and then a whole lot of small islands. And they're kind of they're they're significant because they were so remote. you know, people never arrived there until a few hundred years ago. And as soon as people arrived, they started destroying them uh, and making species go extinct and so on. and and uh, so just really over the in, in my lifetime, really, um, the the whole world came together. They called the Galapagos Islands a World Heritage Site, and they worked really hard to study and understand and help restore them. The other reason they're kind of famous is because Charles Darwin visited the Galapagos Islands uh, for a couple of months, and uh, they played a part in him and uh, his reflections on uh, that became the theory of evolution.
0: Mm-hmm. Awesome, very cool. Well, I guess... Uh what Marty and I want to know is how we can contact Fortress Press so they can send us somewhere cool. We yeah. we've, oh, right. we've never written books before, but we will happily make, you know, a, a promise and a commitment to Fortress Press that if they send us somewhere cool, we'll write a good book just for them. Mm-hmm.
2: I, listen, I think you ought to I think you ought to approach them about a theology of hockey. That could ah. really place and your job your job would be to go to a hundred hockey games and theologize about hockey
0: now we're okay now we're talking that's a brilliant (laughs) idea (laughs) that'll that'll sell awesome (laughs) man awesome well uh thank you so much for, uh, for that rundown about the the galapagos islands i know it's a place that um originally i didn't really know what it was and then my wife had said like hey it'd be really cool to go to the galapagos islands and so i looked into it and i was like you're right it would be really cool and then you came out this awesome book about it so I think I'm supposed to go to the Galapagos Islands (laughs) well
2: it really is it's it's an amazing experience it's not cheap and you know travel like that is a big deal but sure uh, it's amazing you know uh, probably no other single place has been covered on so many nature shows just because it's so unique Mm -hmm. Um, there are species there that you know are found nowhere else in the world and uh, it's like this little laboratory um (laughs) Or, uh, and it's just amazing in so many different ways.
0: Yeah, that's so cool. Can you just like share with us maybe like two or three just like highlights from your trip sure, or sure. things that were just so cool to you?
2: Sure. Well, um, so one of the things about the Galapagos Islands is so interesting because people were never there. Uh, the animals there developed without a fear of humans. And in fact, hmm. there really are no large predators there. So the creatures that exist there. Uh, they, they don't have a lot of fear. Um, so uh, I actually was able, I've been to the Galapagos Islands twice, and the first time I went, one afternoon I had a fever. I got and picked up a little bug in Ecuador. And uh, I, I I was okay, but I didn't feel so great. And our boat, uh, we were, uh, one of the best ways to visit the, the Galapagos Islands is, is by boat, because that way you don't have to have a environmental footprint on the land. So you sleep on a boat, and the boat goes from island to island, and they, the, they take you out on little excursions to either snorkel or hike or whatever. But our boat was anchored in this bay, and we had a couple free hours, so I put on snorkel and fins, and I swam across the bay to the beach. I lay down on the beach, uh, trying to kind of warm up in the sun, and a sea lion comes up, hmm. and he waddles his way up the beach and was totally unafraid of me, laid down literally like uh, you know my best friend right next to me, <laughs> Uh, I, so close that I could smell his fish breath. And and then he falls asleep and rolls over and has a flipper draped over my leg. Right. And <laughs> I just remember l- lying there thinking, where else on earth would this happen where right. animals aren't afraid of you? Um, wow. Another from from this last trip, something I'd seen on television and I thought I, I doubt I'll ever be able to experience this. But uh, on the Galapagos Islands, there's a kind of a lizard, a big lizard, about three feet long, up to maybe four feet long, called a, a marine iguana. It's the only lizard in the world that eats underwater. And in fact, it eats underwater. It eats uh, in, the, in, the, in the ocean, the Pacific Ocean. And so we were snorkeling in, along this coastline. And I look up and I, I, or I look down. And about six feet below me in the crystal clear water, there's a marine iguana grazing on the algae and over the next maybe half hour 45 minutes i was just swimming uh, uh, um, among all of these marine iguanas <laughs> and it was just you know just an amazing experience to be able to see so those are a couple but every day was filled with so many amazing experiences like that for people who love the outdoors who love nature who just love adventure and and encounters with other living creatures it's it's hard to beat mm.
0: Yeah, that's so cool. I like the closest thing I've ever got was uh, snorkeling off the coast of um, the Florida Keys with my wife, (laughs) which was cool. Uh, Tons of like stingrays and uh, some smaller sharks and stuff, but nothing like that. That's awesome.
2: Yeah, it really is amazing. And and uh, I I mean, if anything, it it gives you a feel for what it must have been like long long ago before. you know, so many people had killed so many species that, that, uh, that all, all the species went extinct ex- uh, except ones that were afraid of people or all the individuals went extinct and so fear becomes almost genetically passed on but here's a place where animals don't have that fear um, and that made it easy for the first people to come there to exploit the animals. You know, they would take these sea turtles, these huge turtles the size of a, you know, kitchen table and they would put them in their ships, flip them upside down, and you know, these poor turtles would live upside down with no food or water uh, for months, even up to a year, and then of course, then they'd flip them over, chop them open, and they'd have meat that they didn't have refrigeration, so this way, they kept the meat fresh until they wanted to eat it. Uh, You can imagine the devastation when it's so easy to exploit animals like that, but now, because of their protection, get to go and interact with them and it's just magic it's really magic
0: yeah that's so great and like i don't know what you think about this but when i when i think about uh the idea of the the kingdom of god coming here on earth as in heaven um and i think about the earth being fully restored wrongs being put back right to use like some nt right kind of language um and i think about like all of creation and how, you know, creation is so beautiful and yet it's also, uh, like groaning, you know, like in labor pains. And so I wonder if going to somewhere like the Galapagos islands where those creatures don't have to be afraid and where the turtles aren't being, you know, exploited, if that is like, in my mind, that's almost like a sign of, of new creation, like in new creation, uh, we'll be able to interact with animals that way in such a you know beautiful and uh, peaceful way, like the lion laying down with the lamb kind of idea. Um, that's just that. W- that's what comes to mind for me when you uh, yes. throughout reading your book.
2: Well, can I say something about that? Absolutely, um, absolutely.
0: Josh,
2: um, f- first of all, I-, I think you're right. I think I think a lot of us were given a version of the gospel that was I often call it an evacuation plan. Yeah. It was basically saying. <laughs> The world is hopeless. There's no hope. We're going to go to heaven. And, and, you know, that gives people almost a license to kill. It's Mm -hmm. like, it's like the earth is going out of business. You might as well plunder it. You know, it's going to be thrown away anyway. I, I, the way I say it sometimes it's, it's as if we say to God, we're going to return the earth empty. You gave it to us full. We're going to return it empty. Mm -hmm. Um, And that has been so destructive. Uh, And so I'm really glad when, when you say, Um, we have to understand that part of what it means to believe in Jesus and believe the gospel and believe that God is restoring the world, that that invites us not only to a new relationship with God and a new relationship with ourselves and a new relationship with each other, but also a new relationship to the earth and our fellow creatures. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is deeply profound. But one of the things that I think we have to do, and this involves some theological work and, and some of it's quite controversial, But a whole lot of people are willing to say, oh, yes, uh, you know, in the distant future, after the second coming or something, they push it so far off into the future that it makes it seem unrealistic and even unnecessary now. Mm -hmm. And I think ever our uh, our eschatology is, whatever our view of the future is, if it lets us off the hook for being responsible stewards of the earth and doing all we can to restore it now, Um, you know, I think that's a theology that actually sucks. Yeah,
0: (laughs) (laughs) for sure. No, absolutely. I, I agree so much. Like I always try to tell my students that, uh, you know, this, this whole, like we just walked through this big thing. Like what is the gospel six week intensive thing? Like, uh, probably seminary level stuff. My kids are smart. They can handle it. Telling them like the gospel is so much bigger than, Hey, you get to go to heaven when you die. Yes, like, actually, yes. it's way bigger than that, way better. Yes. And yes. talking about, you know, the kingdom of God being inaugurated uh, by the death and resurrection of Christ and how we're, we're called to be, like, to be, you know, work alongside of God to bring that kingdom here and now. And so exactly. if the kingdom of God is going to have, you know— um things restored or it's going to be peaceful or the lion will lay down with the lamb, then why don't we start living like the kingdom of God is actually here? Because I believe that it is. It's not, you know, it's already not yet, not fully realized, but absolutely. I think um, you're exactly right. And it's just so much better, (laughs) so much more beautiful. I don't know why it's controversial.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, there's history to it that a lot of people don't know. Sure. Um, you know, here in the United States, our ancestors in the name of Jesus stole the lands from the native peoples. Our ancestors in the name of Jesus uh, enslaved Africans and kept them enslaved and used the Bible to defend it. And, and so all of this is in our history. And the ways that, that it was defended involved saying, hey, the world is supposed to be unjust, uh, it's only heaven that's going to be just, uh, <laughs> as if, you know, we, we had to do some kind of rewrites of the Lord's Prayer uh, to make that work, because the Lord's mm-hmm. Prayer actually says, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We Absolutely. made it say, uh, forget about the earth, take us to heaven, you know. But yeah, and that's why the kind of work you guys are doing on this podcast and you're doing with your students so important, because we got to help people see. There really has been sucky theology in the past, <laughs> and, and, and we need theology now that, that brings justice, especially in a time like we are in of, of environmental catastrophe. Like I think it's even beyond environmental crisis when you take climate change, global warming, and combine it with what we're doing to soil and what we're doing to freshwater reserves and what we're doing to forests and what we're doing to the, our oceans. Uh, and what we're doing to extinct uh, to drive species to extinction? Well, you know, you just add all of this together, and now suddenly, good theology is a matter of life or death.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah. Do you it, that ties in so nicely with this this idea that I really liked you brought up in your book, uh, where Marilyn Robinson, I believe that's how you said her name, was asked yes. uh, what single thing would make the world in general a better place, and she replied, yes. "Loving it more." Yes. <laughs> Yeah. And you got in to talk about, um, you know, could this experience of, of a loving gaze, this idea of a loving gaze with creation um, be the holy prize of a holy pilgrimage? And you tied in uh, some thoughts from Richard Rohr, who um, his book, Universal Christ, was fantastic, where he talks a lot about that loving gaze with his uh, his black lab, Venus. Yes. Um, can you speak to that, that idea of this loving gaze a little bit?
2: Yeah, so, you know, I, Richard is a good friend. In fact, I work with him uh, now at the Center for Action and Contemplation. And, and um, the word contemplation means gaze. It's a kind mm. of gaze. It it means to see, but to see without uh, certain kinds of mental faculties uh, 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 distorting what we see. So, you know, you're walking down the street and you see a person. There's part of my brain that goes attractive, unattractive, thin. <laughs> fat uh, my race another race richer than me poorer than me the same as me all of these comparisons all of these judgments and and you know i i i'm sad to say this but i think there are a lot of people who probably had very few milliseconds of their life where they've looked at anything without that inner chatter going on and what contemplation involves is the ability to, to look at something without that chatter and to just see it with appreciation, to see it with love, to see it with compassion. Um, one way I like to say it is it's to join God in seeing the world. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, my, people might say, oh, wow, that sounds kind of spacey. Well, no, it's right, <laughs> in the, uh, it's right in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Jesus says, uh, talks about how uh, God sees every sparrow that falls. And it's not clear that phrase sparrow that falls, if Jesus is saying, if a sparrow dies and falls out of the air, or if he's just saying every time a sparrow lands on the ground looking for a seed or whatever, you know, Mm. but that God cares and notices. And so we join God with God's kind of gaze at the world. And, uh, and this, you know, this is deeply, deeply spiritual because it affects how we live every day. It affects when you're sitting on the metro or sitting on a bus or sitting at a hockey game and you look at all the other people and do you see them with love? Do you see them with judgment? Do you see them as if they're just a piece of furniture? Um, But it also involves the way we see a mountain or the way we see a river or the way we see a bird or the way we see a a business transaction. So it it, it affects everything. Mm
0: -hmm. Man, that's – I think – it was in that section too, um, where you talked about if we would take like a like a seventeen second mini vacation just to you know step outside and look up at the stars um, yes. and that that was just that spoke to me personally because so the house that my wife and I currently live in is built into the side of a hill, and so our driveway is like way lower in elevation, and we have all these steps you know they're kind of annoying to get up to go to our our, our house, but we live in the middle of like nowhere where there's no light pollution. And so at nighttime, you can see all the stars and it's beautiful. Yes. Which, uh, when we so we lived actually in South Florida for about two and a half years, um, we didn't have that where we lived. We were in West yes. Palm. Yeah. So now, like every time we go out at night, my wife always stops to be like, no, look, we have to look at the stars before we go inside. And sometimes I get annoyed. I'm like, no, I want to go inside. It's cold out. <laughs> but no, it just it was so convicting to me and just so beautiful. Like that that really spoke to me, just that experience of uh just being able to look up. Um I don't know. It, it says something something special.
2: You know, uh uh something that uh, Richard Royce says a lot, I say a lot, and, and it actually several, you know, major theologians, including Augustine and Aquinas, um, said this. Uh, that the first book that God has given us is not the Bible. The first book is creation. Mm. And and what's so sad to me is a lot of Christians become experts in every verse and chapter of the Bible, but they don't know the name of a single bird in their neighborhood. <laughs> they don't know the name of a single tree. And, and I think there's a real sense if we, if this earth, if all of creation is God's artwork and God is the artist, um, and God is also, let's say, a, a, an author that inspires or, or he's really like a co-author because God always works with um, with human beings as fellow authors in this. But um, that, you know, we pay a lot of attention to God's books, but don't pay attention to God's artwork. <laughs> and uh, but they both are windows for us into the heart uh, of the creator. And in fact, the written book that we have uh, constantly tells us Uh, of the power of creation to speak to us
0: yeah yeah that's that's so good that i remember uh when i first read or or came across that idea that you know creation is like god's first uh, book or first bible to us um i thought it was so cool and i shot a text real quick to a good friend of mine who's like super conservative, um, like confessionally reformed kind of dude. And he was like, you can't say that. (laughs) And I was like, no, you're missing it, dude. It's so beautiful. Uh, But just
2: Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I didn't. didn't Oh, no, you're good.
0: I was just going to say just that idea of of God pouring himself out into creation um, and speaking to us through that. I don't know why that's something to be so afraid of, Mm -hmm. you know?
2: You know i I spent uh, quite a few years in some of those uh, neo-reformed circles, and I often joke that you have uh, Roman Catholics and Romans Protestants because a lot of Protestants like the Book of Romans as if it's mm-hmm. the you know the the pinnacle of the Bible. And I, I don't care. I, I actually think we ought to say that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the pinnacle if there is a pinnacle. but
0: Amen. what
2: what's what's interesting in Romans uh, one, I mean, this is pretty staggering for the favorite book of reform uh, folks. Uh, one of the favorite books. Um, uh, What is known about God should be plain to them because God made it plain to them ever since the creation of the world. God's invisible qualities, God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen because they are understood through the things that God has made. So, you know, that beloved book of Romans uh, makes the same point that uh, that what that God is knowable in a real way through creation, if we just have eyes to see uh, and ears to hear.
1: And and I think one of the things that I like to tell my kids, like my actual children, not my students, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I I don't have students, I just have kids. Um, I try to tell them a lot that, you know, you can see God in everything that you do around you and everything that is happening around you. And, um, you know, oftentimes when we go on a road trip somewhere, or we're driving somewhere, or, You know, or we're just on, we're out doing something, you know, they have the mentality, they're starting to get the mentality of, well, you know, I I just, I want to go home and watch TV or I want to go home and play this game or that game. And I think oftentimes they miss that that where they are is so much more interesting <laughs> than, yes. than that game could ever be. That game will come and go. And so I I often try to, you know, drive my kids towards, hey, just stop for a couple of minutes and enjoy life, uh, yes. you know, and enjoy, <laughs> but, but enjoy the things that God has created around you. And if you ever need a reminder and evidence that he created the universe and that he is alive and that he is real, all you need do is go outside and take a breath and look around and there's your evidence and your proof um, I think my oldest one uh, is starting to get it, but the others are still
0: yeah. still <laughs> That's
1: That's I yeah. think, so.
0: yeah, I remember too, like and this uh just came to mind because I'm looking out my window here and I'm surrounded by trees and just this beautiful idea, I don't remember where I read it. it it might have been uh, Richard Rohr who said it, but he was talking about how even trees are like extending out, like reaching yeah. out into God or, or for God, yes. however you want to look at that, depending on what, you know, language you're comfortable with. Um, but even just in this conversation we're having now and looking out the window and, and seeing all these trees with the, you know, the multiple colored leaves and, uh, you know, some of the, the leaves are falling off, but the the tree is still alive. It You know, it's just going through a change in um, its life cycle. It's crazy to me. I was reflecting on that this morning. Um, and just maybe how like a tree could symbolically maybe even represent, uh, us and our, you know, spiritual walker journey, um, in faith where there's times when, uh, we look like we're good and beautiful and fruitful and then, uh, something happens and our leaves fall off, but we're not dead, you know, we're not quite dead, but maybe God is reshaping us or refining us, um, for the next season where we blossom and, uh, I don't know. Maybe that sounds crazy, but I was thinking about that a lot this morning, actually.
2: I think you're describing exactly what it says in, uh, in John chapter 1, where it begins, in the beginning was the word or the logos, and that, that word, word or logos means the pattern or logic so, or, or wisdom. So in the beginning was the wisdom or logic or pattern, and the, the word was with God and the word was God, that in some way that when we're getting in touch with that logic or pattern or wisdom, we're actually getting in touch with God. And mm-hmm. um, and that's the wisdom that became incarnated in Jesus, uh, John goes on to say. But if it's there in all of creation, uh, then and in fact, in, in the book of Proverbs, it talks about this, how wisdom was with God in, in the act of creation, um, then when you pay attention to that tree and you realize you look at it not just once, but you look at it again and again and you see it through the seasons and you see the leaves fall off and then you see it seem dormant and dead for months. And then you see the buds come and then, and the blossoms come and the leaves come and you, and then you watch it year by year grow and you watch a storm come and knock a branch off, but then you watch it heal. There's a wisdom. You're seeing something about the logic there. And of course, then you realize, you know, this logic is in my life. I, I go to sleep every night. I go to a period where I look dead, and then I wake up and and I'm rested and and so that patterns to me. And then you read the Gospels and you read about death and resurrection. And you say, "Oh, this is the this is the pattern uh, that uh, that of God's wisdom built into the universe." I think, uh, I, I that is a a kind of wisdom that we, uh, you know, you can go to school, you can get. Uh, uh, all kinds of degrees and you can still be pretty ignorant about some of that basic wisdom. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's one of the things that I hope this one book about this one place could help maybe sensitize people to a little bit more.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know it did for me and like, I already loved, you know, going out and being in nature and this just solidified, you know, those kind of things for me. And, um, you know, often people ask, like, how do you experience God? Uh, and for me, and also for my wife as well, which is nice, is just by being out in nature. There's something yeah. uh, holy um, about those experiences. Yeah, So
2: I couldn't, couldn't agree with you more. And, and you know, that is real theology,
0: <laughs>
2: to, to look for the creator in the intricacy of creation. You know, my wife and I are kind of nerds, and we were just watching. <laughs> Uh, some science channel thing about the Higgs boson and the uh, uh, the uh, large hadron uh, co- uh, co- collider and all of this subatomic physics stuff, and and but you just step back and you think, if God is the creator, then all of this is a reflection of of the dynamism and, uh, and brilliance and uh, intensity uh, and, and power of God. Uh, right.
0: All right. Yeah, no, that's so good. And I think um you kind of drew on on some of those ideas too throughout the book. You um I thought the the chapter that you did uh titled Monster about uh kind of like breaking down some of these false conceptions of Charles Darwin. Yes. Um I think spoke to that idea a lot uh because I know he's been like he was demonized to me growing up, you know, as a yes. kid and even though um man I don't know how to say this in a non like arrogant way even though I quote unquote know better now um I still have those uh like knee-jerk reactions sometimes uh when we talk about those kind of things but I thought you did such a nice job like um speaking to those intricacies and um in a way that was super helpful um and like you said theological but also uh kind of cut Charles Darwin some slack and was like wait a minute guys like this dude, was he was pretty cool, and he loved nature, and he loved creation. and um, So, yeah, I thought that was super helpful.
2: Well, thanks. Yeah, you know, that was one of my favorite chapters to write in this book. I, I, uh, I did a lot of research on Charles Darwin. I read Origin of the Species. I read some, part of his autobiography and some other biographies. And, um, and, you know, it's very sad to me. It still happens today. Um, in fact, you know, I've been, I've been able to experience sort of the downside of this. I mean, I, I have people write books about me and write things about me and <laughs> I, I'm the devil and all this. And, and then you realize, oh, they say that about, Char- they said that about Charles Darwin. They said it about Galileo. They said it about Copernicus. Um, a lot of people don't know John Calvin mocked Copernicus, um, for saying what we all now uh, agree is true, that the, uh, <laughs> that the earth is not the center of the universe. So um, all that's to say, uh, you know, just because people are religious doesn't make it more likely that they're correct when they mm. judge other people. <laughs>
0: <In> Amen. Fact, <laughs> Straight up. It, it might
2: right. make it, if you hear religious people making judgments, we, we uh, those kind of, you know, simplistic, bitter uh, uh, judgments, uh, you might want to be suspicious of it.
0: <laughs> oh, sure. No, absolutely. Yeah, that and that's something too that like I've kind of um you know kind of uh broken off from uh was that kind of way of thinking cuz I was definitely raised that way. Um and you know, just a little bit to know about Marty and I uh we served in ministry together. That's how we we know each other. Um and even though he's in Chicago now and I'm back in Maryland, we served at a church in South Florida together. And we had, I mean, Marty, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but we had a pretty negative experience in this church. Yes. Yes. Um, (laughs) And both of us genuinely, like, we had this conversation. I remember having this conversation with God. God, if this is what serving in your church is like, if this is what being in ministry is like, I'm done. I don't want to be a part of this. So we've we've been, uh, both of us have been very hurt by the church, um, but also... Uh, We always kind of had this sense that we should cling to Jesus, you know, and not throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so that's kind of been our experience, um, you know, clinging to Jesus and moving forward. And Marty and I, um, you know, have both been able to do that. And that's really uh, kind of why we do this podcast is to help people cling to Jesus. Um, And for me personally, uh, Brian, your work um, and why I was so excited to to have this conversation with you is because your work was extremely helpful for me during those periods of time to be able to cling to Jesus and say, you know what, forget this stuff and be able to move forward um, and still continue to do uh, what I do today, which um, hopefully is bring hope to students uh, where they can know that, um, you know, Jesus loves them and that uh, the gospel is much bigger than you know, peace out. We get a dip out of this, you know, planet when we die someday. <laughs> so thank right. you for that. Yeah.
2: Well, that's that's encouraging to hear. You know, the, you probably were saying that the the antidote to bad theology is not no theology; it's good theology. And yeah. So <laughs> this is this is the struggle that we have, and and we're I, I, I I'm going to say this in a kind of a funny way, but sure. But we're really lucky that it turns out that Jesus really is great, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because, and, and, and and that Jesus is really greater than the theology that a lot of us were given about him. You know, when I I think about when I think about the Jesus that I've actually encountered in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the Jesus that's framed by all of the Old Testament and is explored by the New Testament, like I just think, even though I had a ba- I, I felt that some of the theology I'd, I'd been brought up with was, was unlivable. (laughs) It turned out that Jesus was way bigger than that. And, and and this is part of the work of theology to try to stretch our thinking to be as good and as big as Jesus was and to be as good and as big as the universe is, you know, (laughs) and to, 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 uh, be honest to our experience and, our questions and, and all the rest. And that's, that's why I'm so thrilled that guy that you guys are doing, uh, having these kinds of conversations. You know, I, I get to travel a lot and I think what the 95 theses were on the, you know, to start the, the reformation 500 years ago, I think podcasts are now
0: <laughs> awesome
2: <laughs> because to I- give people a chance to really think and uh, yeah. in the privacy of their own cars, you know, to, to, yeah. think-
1: yeah, can i, I want to, I wanted to ask a question about um this this chapter monster. I, I just one of I, I enjoyed reading that chapter as well., uh, but something that really kind of stood out to me in the chapter is uh, it's on the last the last two pages, uh, and it's the picture of the it's the two different pictures of the of the bird. yes, uh, <laughs> and um and and you kind of there's the picture of the bird that's it's clear. It's just a black silhouette. Uh, but in the second picture, uh, as the bird is jumping off of the ledge down onto the step, he's blurred and you and you say, no, I can't help but see the blur is the point. Uh, <laughs> and obviously, I'm not giving a lot of context on purpose because I don't necessarily want you to I don't want to give away too much of what you would say or what you would want people to go buy your book and find out for themselves. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but just out of curiosity, would you would you care to talk a little bit about that and like just what that meant to you and how you came
2: to that? You know, I didn't say this in that chapter, Marty, but there's a certain sense every photograph is a lie.
0: Mm, interesting. Because
2: it gives the impression that something is still. You know, it, it a photograph captures something and that's and makes you have the opinion or the feeling that that is a lasting thing. But, you know, even a mountain, you know, you take that, a picture of a mountain today, it might look the same in 500 years, but in 5,000 years – it's going to be quite different because slow processes are always bringing about change. And so the, the thing about that photograph, which I took completely by accident, yeah. but it captured this realization that everything is in motion. And, um, and you might say, well, hold it. God's not in motion. Well, that's true in the sense that, you know, God is uh, God's character is God's never having a bad day. Right. <laughs> um, right. But, you know, I don't know if people have ever thought of it like this, but, um, you know, Marty, before you were born, um, God had never had to be the God in the universe with a guy named Marty like you living in it. And in in a sense, each of us bring a new experience uh, to a relational God, a God who's in relationship with creation is entering, you know, in, in that sense, God's experience of the universe is dynamic as the universe unfolds and develops. Now, certain people might want to explain that away, and so on. Um, but I think this is one of the most powerful meanings of the cross. That, in some sense, we look at the cross and we see God bringing human suffering into God's own heart, and, yeah. and we see and we see God entering into. Um, into human pain and human suffering, the way God created the universe was dynamic. Water mm-hmm. flows, light flows, wind blows, gravity pulls. It's all dynamic. Um, well, that tells me Christianity is evolving as well. Mm-hmm. And if anybody who knows anything about church history knows that too. And each of us is changing. And so the sense that we're in constant change puts us in a different relationship with God. It And it's why I think, I re- resonate so deeply with Jesus' words, follow me. He yeah. doesn't just say, here's a line. Come and stand on my side of the line. He's moving. So he says, yeah. keep moving. With me. There's more to learn. There's more to grow. Keep moving with me. And that sense of movement is so important, I think, for what it means to be uh, in relationship with a living God, the dynamic God.
0: No, absolutely. And I think it's really interesting to me that you use the language of like uh, Christianity is evolving or – Uh, Whatever for two reasons one because the way that I um, read scripture or see scripture at least is I see this kind of um, progressive revelation which I know can get you into trouble depending on what circles you're flying in but uh, we see this idea of you know Jesus being fully uh, realized in the person of Christ right like Jesus is the ultimate revelation if you want to know what God is like you know I tell my students if you want to know what the character of God is like look at Jesus that's the ultimate revelation of who God is. Um, And then in the Old Testament, there's some portraits that don't quite look like Jesus. Um, Mm. But I think that's because God was progressively revealing himself to us. It's not that God was changing. It's that our understanding and our faith in that God was evolving, was changing, was progressing. Um, And I don't see that as a bad thing. You know, I see that as a very good thing. Um, In fact,
2: it's the only way it could be when you think about it. Yeah. You know, um, when I was a little kid all I thought of my mother was the source of, you know, milk and warmth and protection and change diapers. Uh, <laughs> and my mom just died a couple of months ago. She was 92 years old. And, oh, man. and you know, when, uh, as I looked back on her life with her in her last couple of years, in fact, it was very touching because she had dementia. So she was forgetting a lot of her own life. And there, there was a point where I realized I remember more of my mother's life than she does at this point. But, you know, as a 92 year old woman i and as a as a an adult myself i understood her in such a deeper way i i wasn't capable now it doesn't mean that when i was a little baby my understanding was meaningless it was Mm -hmm. just limited to my my capacities and and uh i think that's how it is with god um someone has said, we don't see God as God is. We see God as we are, meaning Mm -hmm. we never see God in God's fullness, but we see what can be seen of God from where we are, uh, at this point in our journey.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you like touched on that, um, in your book, this idea of like, uh, projection, I guess, like we almost project ourselves, um, which oftentimes is like, you know, we step back from, and that's a scary thing. Uh, but it's also just reality, right? Like, um, I love how, um, uh, what was it like the tricycle illustration that, uh, Richard Rohr likes to use, yes. uh, where he puts experience at the front and he's like, that's just us being honest, yeah. <laughs> you know, our yeah. experience definitely, uh, uh, leads and, and drives us. Um, and I was having an interesting conversation with, uh, the executive pastor, um, at the church I work at, uh, the other day, um, her name's Jeanette. She's awesome. Um. And we were just having this conversation about this word progressive. And I was like, I don't know why people are so afraid of this idea of uh, being quote unquote progressive. If our theology is just sitting still and is, you know, a document that was written, you know, in the 1600s or whatever, um, and we just adhere to that, then that doesn't seem quite right to me. Like, I think our, our theology should be progressing uh, towards as we grow deeper relation with god uh, a deeper understanding of creation and the world that we live in our theology should be progressing with those things um i feel as god reveals himself to us in all those different areas of our life you know i
2: uh, i i think that's really really well said uh, but and you know uh, if you don't mind me just taking that thought a little bit farther. sure um uh so one of our huge challenges is that we all got our theology from somebody somewhere hmm, and sure. all, and all of us who are white uh, we have to acknowledge that we got our theology from white people, and those white people have a history or many of us got our, our theology from white people yeah and one of our problems for white guys like you and me is that we grew up hearing that our theology was just called theology and other people had black theology and brown theology and Asian theology and queer theology and feminist theology, ours was just theology. But if we were to step back and say, actually, no, it wasn't just theology, it was white male theology. It was, and that doesn't make it wrong, but it also doesn't make it right. And uh, what it means is that we, uh, our culture was writing from a certain perspective. And here's the truth. That I, I I believe this is true, and everyone would have to judge it by themselves. But a lot of sectors of Christianity are—they inherited what a friend of mine, uh, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, calls "slaveholder religion." In mm-hmm. other words, the people who use the Bible to justify slavery, the white people who use the Bible to justify slavery, have never actually deeply repented of the way they use the Bible, and they've never question that way of using the bible if i can say it this way they've maintained a theology that really sucks yeah (laughs) because it did so much harm and and uh and 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 unfortunately many of them they're very loyal and they want to be loyal to the theology of their fathers and their grandfathers and their grandfathers before them which is loyalty in one sense is understandable but when your ancestors were racists that's a problem being loyal to them yeah and 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 I, I hate to say it, but a lot of white theology that has been very, very conservative, it, it's conservative because it's trying subconsciously, I think, sometimes consciously, but often subconsciously, it's trying to preserve the privilege of white people and of men and uh, so on. And And I think that's one of the reasons people are so afraid of that word progressive, because they're afraid that if we progress, it's going to knock the people off the pedestal who've been on the pedestal for a long time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. This it's like this idea of you know power or privilege, like you say, being in this, this special place. And actually, I had that realization um, a couple years ago when I was standing and looking at uh, a bookshelf, not you know much unlike the one behind me, um, filled with all these different you know theology books that I have read and that have influenced me. Um, and I I was struck by just that very fact. I was like, wow, these books are all written. By white educated males. Yeah. What does that mean? You know, what does that say? Um, And that was really jarring for me. Um, And then I started exploring that, and I'm so, you know, very glad that I I did. And um, just with that that idea of slaveholder religion, something uh, I heard you say before, it was actually uh, so I used to be a huge fan of the Bad Christian podcast, I used to listen to them all the time. Uh, And they were very helpful for me in a time of, you know, deep hurt and pain that I expressed uh, earlier. And I've since kind of moved on from listening to them. But you had a conversation with uh, Pastor Joey Svensson on there where you were saying that, like, people used their theology to justify, like, beating and raping their slaves because they were more concerned about the doctrine of hell. And, like, that's not great.
2: (laughs) It's not great. No, it's not
0: (laughs) So, that's right. Yeah, but that I think all of this ties into that idea that you brought up earlier is that all theology is contextual, right? Yes. Um and even uh, another way I've heard it said before and I I think it goes together. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this. Uh Sarah Bessie said um that all theology is almost like autobiography. Yeah. Um so can you just continue unpacking that a little bit that sure, idea?
2: Sure. Well, in fact, uh, there's a, a really important movement in 20th century uh, Protestant theology that, that called narrative theology, okay. and the idea that if we aren't being, if we aren't telling the stories of how our theology is affecting our lives, and, and how our theology is messing up our lives, that, that <laughs> we're, we're not doing honest theology, because theology is always, uh, it's, it's relational, because God is relational. So... The theology isn't just a subject that we be, that we study god's not like a frog that we put on a dissection table and cut <laughs> open and say you know here's you know it, 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 no if we believe the living god is real then theology is always relational and it's always experiential and so we have to talk about what effect this is having uh, in our lives and we have to talk about because uh, our experiences of God are always from a certain vantage point. And what is so good about that is if I learn to do that for myself and then I meet someone else, I, I want to be curious about what they're seeing and learning of God uh, from their unique vantage point too.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's, um, it's almost like this idea, you know, I think of uh, how the kingdom of God is made up of all people, all tribes, all nations, all language. Um, and when we just get our theology from one specific context, you know, say for us being white males, um, then we're missing a huge part of the kingdom of God. And like, I like to try to think of it as like the kingdom of God is a mosaic where we we're missing also part of the image of God, because it's not just white dudes that were created, you know, in the image of God, uh, but all people. And so when we're, leaving people out of the conversation, whether they're uh, female or Hispanic or, or African-American or whatever that might be, uh, gay, straight, whatever, then we're missing a part of the image of God in the conversation and our theology isn't complete. Um, and so I think that's, I mean, I i think you're just so right. It's almost like like so self-evident that like, yeah, we need to hear these other voices because this, this matters. Um, yeah. But people are so afraid of it, you know. Uh, yes. For... And, and,
2: and this goes back to even the idea of creation to be a creature is to be limited, which might sound like a bad thing. But it also means that nobody in history has ever had exactly the vantage point on God that I have. <laughs> and, and nobody ever will. Right. Um, and, and but that's not just true of me. That's true of every single person. And, and that's true of me at every different moment in my life. Uh, because God is that big and that wonderful and that amazing. And that, to me, is part of this the, the great opportunity for us to be humble enough to look for and listen for the glimpses of God that we get from any different people. And what's so beautiful when you think about it is that is actually what we have in the Bible. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the book of Ruth, to me, one of the most interesting, fascinating books in the whole Bible, the book of Ruth gives a, a story about a woman's experience of God, who wasn't a Jew. Um, and she was, and in fact, she was we might call her an undocumented alien. She was a uh, immigrant and and she has an experience of God. Um, and her story counts. It deserves to be told. and uh, it, it's not just the kings and the important, powerful people. it's the common people and and mm-hmm. uh, and everybody's story uh, there's a place for all different kinds of stories. And you know, uh, I don't know uh, when this podcast will play, but, we're coming up on the Christmas season, mm-hmm. and very often in in the weeks leading up to Christmas and the Advent season, we we have uh, we read the genealogies, which a lot of times we think are very boring. But you think each of those names and those names include uh, Rahab, uh, who was uh, uh, not a Jew and in fact was a sex worker, and they include they include Ruth. Um, and, uh, so these, all of these names are included in the genealogy. Every name is important. Everybody's experience matters and everybody matters. You know, God, God is in relationship to every single one.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that absolutely. That's so good. And I think too, just, um, like I think about then like that, just that idea then how our our experience then truly does matter. And I know how experience becomes also a, a bad word uh, within certain theological circles. Like, oh no, we can't trust our experience. Like our experience is bad. It's evil. It's wicked. Um, like God being a relational God who created us to experience Him, <laughs> right? Yes. Even even people who say, what's what's the chief end of man, right? To to experience God or and glorify Him forever, right?
2: Yes.
0: Our experience matters. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. Our relationships matter.
2: And I don't mean to sound too cynical, but that person who says, don't trust your experience, you say, well, whose experience should I trust? Um, <laughs> and then what you realize is he's really telling you either trust my experience or trust my interpretation of Calvin's experience or whatever else. Yeah. In other words, trust the vantage point of somebody else. Okay, maybe so. But boy, we've got an awful lot of Bible verses where, for example, Moses who's granted, you know, who's seen as a prophet, he doesn't hoard being a prophet to himself. He says, I wish that all of God's people were prophets. Mm -hmm. Or Jesus, I mean, one of the most amazing uh, passages in the gospel is in the gospel of John, where Jesus says to his disciples, uh, greater things will you do because I go to the Father. In other words, Jesus is saying, I don't want to be the only great person around here. I want you guys to do greater things (laughs) than me. So, it, you know, there's this sense of generosity rather than hoarding. Uh, and uh, Now, look, uh, the people who are worried about experience, you know, they've got reasons to be worried. Um, sure. Sure. Uh, somebody comes along and says, God told me that you should give me all your money. Uh, you know, <laughs> I had this experience. Uh, I have no obligation to let somebody else's experience tell me what to do. Um, but, uh, but when we're in a spirit of, of humility, where we're trying to be honest to what we're coming to know of God, and 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 we're and and this is why your image of the tricycle earlier is so important. It's not a unicycle. It, it's it's the, the the story of our experiences integrated with our engagement with Scripture and our engagement with tradition. And uh, as you probably know, the Methodists actually have a fourth uh, wheel, and theirs is uh, is reason. Uh, and uh, so all of this put together tells us that to be a human being um, uh, means that we we have to take every avenue that God can speak to us and and we don't want to cut out any of them.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I love too, like you said, um, with that idea of of being a human, uh, you said towards the, I mean, the very uh, end of your book in the afterward um, that you called play, you said, it's odd. I always thought that one was a human first and then added Christian identity on top of it. Now the order flips and I see the purpose of Christian faith and other faiths as well as helping people to become more fully human, fully alive, fully members of the planetary neighborhood. We share with all other creatures, all our relations. That's just like so beautiful. <laughs> so great. And
2: that's- And I think that's what Jesus meant by the kingdom of God. And I think when Jesus called God father, uh, Jesus was saying, just start seeing the whole world as a family, start seeing the whole universe as a family. This is where St. Francis really had it right when he talked about brother, son and sister moon and brother Fox and, and sister forest, you know, that we're, that it's all a family. It's all loved that the entire universe is held in the love of the creator.
0: Mm. Man, it's so good. That's, dang. <laughs> I mean, I like, I, seriously, time and time again, I just, when I was reading this book, there were so many times when I just had to, like, put it down and step outside. Like, I remember, like, I can't put words to it, but the, the things that are captured uh, here in, in your travels to the Galapagos Islands and then the ideas that you present, um, were just so uh, beautiful and moving to me, um, that there seriously there were multiple times when I put this book down and I just walked outside into my backyard, um, and was just like in awe and found it to be some of the most holy experiences in my life. It's mm-hmm. so, like there you're definitely you're hitting. I don't know how to explain it. I can't put words to it. There's there's truth contained here, and I think when when we as humans bump into uh, genuine truth um, or reality or or God, whatever you want to um, say this is, is that uh, and perhaps in my understanding, it would be because of the image in God, the image of God inside of us, we can recognize these things um, and know when something is true and right and holy. Uh, and just the ideas presented here in your book and the experience that you shared uh, really just brings that about um, in ways that again, i I just don't have words for.
2: Well, that's really encouraging for me to hear, you know, as a writer, that's why writers we we do what we do, and that's why preachers and pastors do what we do because we're trying to whatever little glimpses we get of the glory of God, we they're so precious, they're so priceless. as you say, they're so beyond words. and And we want to help other people. Uh, It was like so many things in life, you know, come see this, come see this. And we want other people to experience it.
0: Right. (laughs) Cool. Well, um, to be fair to your time, because honestly, I could uh, sit here and chat all day. I feel like um, I just want to wrap things up with uh, something I guess is kind of uh, perhaps out of left field. But uh, if I'm honest, when I read this, um, I genuinely thought like, man, that's. Um, I wish I could fully say this and believe it to be true about myself um, because I think it would be so super helpful. Uh, But you have this quote on page 269 where you said, um, I don't care what you call me, a liberal heretic or apostate. If it makes you feel better, label away. A Christian, that's fine, but only if you see solid evidence in my life. A human being, even better. Um, Man, that... Like, that's just so beautiful to me. And just because of my experience, uh, because of – man, I can't even put words to it. But I guess, like, the understanding that – so, like, back to Richard Ward where he talks about the two halves of life. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like because of my experiences, I'm in that second half of life but almost in a way that's premature, right, where sometimes I wish – that I could just be, and this is going to sound super arrogant, but I wish I could just be uh, naive and have the faith that I used to, because it was mm-hmm. so much easier, it was so much um, happier, <laughs> so much, you know, <laughs> so much more to just being black and white, and this is what it is, and going about. But what you expressed speaks to me on a personal level because I want to be, I say these things, but I want to be able to fully believe it. Um, and when I ask myself, do I want to go back to Egypt? The answer is always no. Um, but it's, it gets exhausting. It's tiring. Um, and somehow I, sometimes I feel cheated (laughs) because I'm so young. (laughs) I'm only 25. Um, and I don't know, but I wouldn't have it any other way. So thank you so much again for this book and for your work. And, um, I know for the things that you're going to continue to do, um, I know it has helped so many people, and I'm one of them, so thank you.
2: That's really encouraging, uh, Josh. And can I just say, I I hope you guys keep up the good work, too, because uh, there are so many people who inherited uh, a faith that was—it's a very small little box, and and (laughs) life— life gets bigger than the box. And, yeah. and people are afraid that they're losing faith and they're losing God, but really they're just losing a small box and, and, and they'll find it that God was inside the box, but, but God's also outside the box. And, yeah, uh, And that's what we need to discover.
0: Yeah. That's so great. Just this idea that, um, you know, we have this box, but then not only sure we can find God in it, but then also God transcends it. It's so, yep. man, it's awesome. Yep. And that's, Really, that's and I tell my students this openly, and like Mark and Jeanette are both cool with it. Like, this my students know my story and they know my struggles. I'm very honest. I'm very transparent with them. Um, Yes. But I always, you know, tell them to to cling to Jesus. And um, there's a song that came out recently uh, called "Bigger Than I Thought," and Mm. it's this idea that God is bigger. You know, it's the chorus is just "You're bigger than I thought you were. You're bigger than I thought you Mm. were." Um, I love it. And that keeps being true in my life <laughs> every day. So that's, yeah.
2: good th- that's good theology that does not suck.
0: <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> great. Well, uh, Brian, again, thank you so much for your time. Um, before we go, though, where can uh, where can people find you? Like, we're gonna be sure to link uh, Galapagos Islands: A Spiritual Journey in our show notes, so people can pick up a copy on Amazon. Um, but where else? Where else can people go to to find Brian McLaren?
2: So my website's net, and then there are links there to Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, uh, and uh, people might be interested. The photographs from the, uh, the trip are also available on my blog. And, awesome. Uh, so people find all kinds of resources, and there's, I have some e-books that uh, people might be interested in, and lots of different resources. A children's book that parents might be interested in, so a lot of good, good resources there.
0: Great. Well, again, Brian, thank you so much um, for this interview and, yeah, and again you. for your work. Uh, and hopefully, we can reconnect sometime uh, in the future. Do another episode with you.
2: I love yeah. it. We'll do it then.
0: Thanks. Awesome. Thanks, Brian. And Thank uh, for our listeners, be sure to uh, follow us on Instagram if you don't already. You can join our Facebook discussion group, uh, which, if I'm honest, we've been very bad at managing recently uh, because we've been busy. But, um, you know, come join the conversation, be a part of that, uh, be a part of that community. Um, and also, as always, to sign off, Brian, this is. The the thing I always do is I make sure I say go caps.
1: Go black ox. <laughs>